was like, she deserved to smash into a mountain by the time she got through. Like, <laughs> I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. What's but a smile on that face? You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be. Uh, I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. So this week, uh, for the release, I'm sure, of the critically, soon-to-be critically acclaimed Baywatch, uh, we are taking a look at an older Dwayne The Rock Johnson movie, San Andreas. And the theme we're looking at is uh, just as light fare as the movie, which is the death of a child. Uh, so that should be really fun and light and fluffy to talk about. Uh, but yeah, that's what we're doing this week. And to do that, I have one of my favorite guests. I have a return guest. I have Miranda Sajak. So thanks for joining me, Miranda. Well, thank you for having me back. Oh, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And if, if people like this episode and they want to hear other episodes with you, let's see, we did, uh, the Mission Impossible, uh, Rogue Nation and we We did did Captain Phillips, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, both, both great movies. Yeah, absolutely. So be sure to check those out. But what about uh, if they want to find your work or find you online? Where can they find that? Um, they can find me on Twitter uh, at Miranda Sajak, which is hard to spell, but I'm sure it'll be in the notes somewhere. Yes. Um, and they can find me. Um, that's really the best place to find me on Twitter. Um, and then there, through there, I have links to my website and everything else. But it's all pretty much the same, MirandaZajak.com and everything. Right. Uh, and I remember the last time you were on here, you were kind of uh, pumping up your uh, your kind of latest film project. Anything new going on with that or anything new going on in general? Um. Yeah. I mean, my film project is in post now. I think last time we were in production. So okay. It's exciting to kind of be moving through those stages and uh, we're, we've been working on VFX for the last couple of months, which is really fun. Um, something I haven't really had a lot of time to do for my own projects before. I've kind of worked on it for other people's projects, but it's really fun to do it for my own. Um, so that's kind of a big deal with that one. And then otherwise, I, you know, I'm kind of on the hunt. I'm kind of figuring out what my next project's going to be. So I'm in a really exciting creative place right now because I have a lot of options out there and kind of just deciding what's next. Nice. Awesome. All right. So before we uh, take our break and I talk about this uh, super happy topic uh, during the psychology section, uh, why don't you give us a couple movie recommendations? Sure. Um, So I have a couple of movie recommendations uh, regarding uh, losing a child, which is super, super fun, upbeat theme this week. Um, so the first one is in the bedroom, uh, which is very much about a family coping with the loss of a child. Um, just incredible acting performances across the board, uh, really gut wrenching. And one of the things that I really love about this movie is that it deals with, um, you know, kind of older parents losing a child. It's not, you know, somebody losing a baby, which it so often is. Um, And then it's also, it it really grasps the full arc of emotion when that happens. And I feel like uh, a lot of movies kind of live in grief as sorrow. Um, And this movie definitely kind of goes through many stages, anger and denial and kind of all of the things that would happen. Um, 
if you were to lose a child. And so I really have enjoyed that. And I think that uh, that movie does a great job of capturing all of those emotions. Nice. Yeah, that's one that's been on my list to watch for a long time. So this will give me uh, another reason yeah. to check well, that out. Yeah, if you do it, I if if you do it, I'd totally be happy to to talk about it because it's been a little bit since I've watched it. But I I don't buy movies a lot, um, and I actually just recently cleared out my DVD collection and got rid of a lot of things because we're kind of in the process of maybe moving, and I didn't sell that one, so I know it's important mm. to me. Nice. Um, and I, I, it's just been a while since I've watched it, but I just couldn't bring myself to part with it. So I just have that feeling about it that there's something really special there. So I think I'm going to probably go back and rewatch it, too. Nice. Awesome. Um, yeah. And so there's that one. And then the other one, which is I'm not going to spoil it, um, but it's Meadowland, um, which is also about the loss of a child. Um, and it's really, really just gripping. Um, it's the directing debut of uh, Reed Murano, who is an incredible director. Um, she's currently working on Handmaid's Tale and has a couple of un- other indie films lined up. Um, but Meadowland came out a couple of years ago. Super gorgeous. Olivia Wilde is the lead. Um, you know, the little guest parts are like John Leguizamo and Elizabeth Moss. So you <laughs> already know that, like, the movie just has an incredible cast. Yeah. Uh, and it's just really touching and amazing. And I got to see it in theaters and it's gorgeously shot. Um, Reed is also a cinematographer. So you just know the visuals are going to be fantastic. And they are. Uh, but that one just really broke my heart when I first saw it. And I bought it immediately. And that's another one where I think, you know, everybody should see it and own it. And it's just, again, about parents feeling um, in sort of a, sort of an uh, an unclosed way with the death of a child or the loss of a child and they just aren't um they both deal with it in very different ways so it's a really nice script in that um the script is by christopher rossi and it's a really nice script in that it uh sort of uses diametric opposites to um show how two parents might deal with this kind of a loss so it's not uh I think uh, in the bedroom does, a l- does, does this a little bit too, but each of them deals with it in very different ways. And so I think that that's a really nice uh, movie for this theme. Awesome. All right. That's uh, it's definitely another one. Obviously I haven't seen definitely not as, as well known as in the bedroom, but uh, who would have yeah. thought that those two movies would be suggested when connected to San Andreas <laughs> like that? Yeah. Well, we could not get further away. All right. Um, so we're going to take a break. Uh, I will talk about the psychology, the effects of, of the death of, death of a child on a family, and then we will bring Miranda back to talk about San Andreas. This is Chris Maynard. I'm host of the Following Films podcast. Every week I discuss a current release with one of the creative forces behind the film. Whether it's Giles Nutkins talking hell or high water, Leah Thompson discussing her work on Trouble with the Truth, or Jeremy Sandy chatting about his work on Deepwater Horizon. You can find our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or any place you find podcasts. <laughs> Better yet, you can go to followingfilms.com Check out our latest episode, get some film news, reviews, and all sorts of goodness. Uh, that was my son, Jacob. He says hello, and he really wants you to check out the show. All right, so it's time for the psychological section. So when it comes to this, we've with these sections, we've dealt with a lot of dark topics, a lot of heavy topics. Like just last week, we were talking about sexism. We've talked about how children deal with bereavement, how they deal when a parent or another close loved one dies. But this is probably the darkest subject we've ever looked at, and that is the death of a child. So 
Uh, we're going to do our best, of course, to remain sensitive. Uh, if you are a person who has experienced this and you feel like you can't handle this, feel free to, you know, delete this episode and never listen to it. I completely understand. So the first thing we're going to look at is an article from Psychology Today um, from Dr. Romeo Vitelli. Uh, and it's just titled, When a Parent Loses a Child. And it's about how people cope with this emotional blow. So he starts off talking about how this is one of the greatest traumas imaginable. It actually produces, they've had studies that showed it has greater stress on people than dealing with the death of a parent or a spouse. And they find it especially traumatic because of two reasons. One, it's totally unexpected. It's unless it's a rare case where a child has a terminal disease where you know they have a certain amount of time left. Most times it's completely unexpected. It's also we there's a usual order of things of how things work usually in in our world. And one of those is a child is expected to bury their parent and to flip flop this and to turn it on its head and have to bury your own child really adds an extra layer of trauma there. So this trauma can lead to lots of different psychological and physiological problems. These include depression, not a surprise there, anxiety, cognitive and physical symptoms, uh, marital problems, more risk for suicide, guilt, and an actual physical pain that is accompanied by this trauma. And all of these things can last much longer after the child's death and actually can lead to other diagnoses like things called complicated grief disorder. And that can include a lot of symptoms that are similar to PTSD. But one of the things they're looking at in the research is if losing a child at this young age can reduce a parent's lifespan. So the emotional trauma associated with child loss is devastating no matter what age you're at. Uh, The impact is actually far greater for elderly parents because they often have other problems, other health problems that can be affected by stress and grief. So when you think about it in a vacuum, you start thinking, well, the younger the child is and then the younger the adult is, well, that's going to be worse. But they've actually shown that, you know, parents are in their 70s or 80s and their children are in their, you know, even their 40s and 50s. That can actually cause a lot more problems that can lead to, you know, reduced lifespan and that kind of thing. But In the research literature that's out there, as far as a reduced lifespan, that information is pretty inconclusive, especially for younger parents, because they tend to be more resilient. So, But there was a study on how it affects older adults. So there was a team of researchers in Tel Aviv, and they looked at a national sample of a little over 1,200 older Israelis, and they ranged in age from 75 to 94, and they followed them over a 20-year period. Now, after this 20 years, is a little morbid, but only about 5% of the original sample was alive. And they, they found, they got information about the cause of death and their medical history. So of the participants who had children, around 30% had lost at least one child due to either war or disease. And overall, parents who were bereaved were more likely than those who hadn't suffered this kind of loss to be significantly depressed and be poorer overall as far as physical functioning. And they were also lonelier and had lower cognitive functioning. So over this 20-year follow-up period, parents who had lost a child actually did have shorter lifespans than non-breed parents. And this relationship stayed strong even when you control for things like widowhood status, gender, and age. And this was especially true for bereaved mothers, who were far more likely to die earlier than non-bereaved mothers. Now, on the other side of things, widowhood was more likely to lead to premature death in men, but women who lost a spouse actually appeared better able to cope. So when you boil it all down, why does losing a child lead to this earlier death? So the study researchers, they looked at a bunch of possibilities, because there's a lot in 
psychological research, we have this very famous phrase that correlation does not equal causation. So very rarely will a study come out on its own and say it's because of this, but we there are definite possibilities. So the possibilities include long-term symptoms of PTSD, a loss of meaning in a person's life, uh, biological impact of this severe prolonged stress. We actually did an episode on on stress uh, when we did the Star Trek episode with Sean from No Totally, and we talked about how you know, intense periods of stress are okay, but prolonged stress can really have a really bad effect. And also the other possibility is unresolved grief. This study warned that these results, of course, may not be the same in other countries where cultural influences are different. But really the trauma associated with losing a child, whether it's disease or violence or whatever other reason, leads to really bad physical and mental health issues. As people grow older, the possibility of outliving their child is becoming a reality for many people. And we know from these studies that that is especially dangerous as you get older because these this grief that you're feeling, this unresolved feeling that you're going through, is also going to have an effect on your physical and mental health. So what they find is actually really important is to have other family members to help older family members deal with this loss of a child. Even if you feel like, oh, well, they were 80 and their child was 60, like, they, they had a, you know, a relatively long life. They should be able to move on. It's not necessarily true. So we can't negate that feeling, that loss. So they need to recognize the role that they now need to play in helping these loved ones through the grieving process, whether that means being there for them, helping get them into therapy, finding things they enjoy, whatever that may be, whatever their role is, they need to kind of get on that and start doing that. And also to ensure that health needs are not neglected as a result. There's a lot of studies out there that show that as people get older, even though they have more medical issues, they're less likely to seek help for them because they will say things like, well, it's just old age. It's fine. I'll, it, it'll be OK. It'll kind of it'll work itself out. And that's not necessarily true. So as people who care about people who are older than older than us, we need to help them and make sure those needs are not neglected. OK, so the last article we're looking at is from Rogers, Floyd, Seltzer, Greenberg and Hong in 2008. And it's just about the long term effects of the death of a child on parents' adjustment in midlife. So this is younger parents uh, rather than the elderly parents we were talking about earlier. So it has some stats here that each year over 50,000 children in the United States die. Uh, the death of a child, of course, is one of the most painful events that an adult can experience and is linked to complicated and traumatic grief reactions. So kind of more than any other death and mourning that a person would experience, the death of a child will lead to a lot of difficulty in mourning and quote-unquote moving on with your life, although we tend to not use terms like that um, in therapy because a lot of what we talk about with any traumatic experience is not to, not to try to forget what happened, but to remember the person that you have lost in, in better ways and not just focus on the negative aspects of the end of that person's life. So for parents, we've talked about on the show a lot about attachment and how important the attachment relationship between mother or father and child are. So these parents have to kind of dissolve that relationship. And that can cause a lot of anxiety and a lot of other negative emotions after this loss. They also might experience guilt um, because they were not able to protect their child, um, which is like one of the most basic uh, the basic drives that we have as human beings. So of course, they're end up going to end up feeling guilt, even if they're not at fault in any way. So even though this is really significant, and it, you know, unfortunately happens more than you would think, there's actually not a lot of research on parental bereavement. 
most studies have just been really clinical and focused on grief support groups. So the findings are influenced by what we call self-selection. So people who go to grief groups, you, you can kind of boil them down to a certain personality type. And not every personality type is in that group. And there are going to be people who lost their children who do not fit that mold. So what that means is you can't generalize that information to the broader population of bereaved parents. So what this study wanted to do was to take a look at the impact on the life course of parental bereavement. So, you know, sometimes psychology can be very dark. Um, so basically they studied them prospectively, which means they started, they got like a random selection of people starting at early adulthood, which would be prior to the birth of their child, and then follow them all the way to middle age, usually many years after the death of their child. So their hypothesis was as follows. So they thought there would be evidence of lasting grief in the forms of negative psychological, health, social, and occupational functioning and occupational functioning into midlife. Specifically, the parents who experience the death of a child are going to be more likely to report depressive symptoms, poor psychological well-being, health problems, uh, isolation, like limited social participation, marital problems, and lower occupational success. And their second hypothesis was those who recovered from grief, it would be facilitated by the individual's ability to find a sense of purpose in life, as well as activities that give life meaning. You can see, I think, how those two things are connected. This could be religious participation, social participation, having a satisfying job, having other children at the time of the death of their, of their child, and giving birth to a new child after death. So they took their participants from another longitudinal study, which is something that happens a lot, and they identified 530 participants who had reported that one of their children was deceased at the last point of collection, which at this point was in 1992. So then they took a look at the measures that were taken from this other study of those people as compared to the people who hadn't lost a child. So you have uh, depressive symptoms, uh, purpose in life and psychological well-being, physical health, occupational attainment and income social participation, marital disruption, job satisfaction, and presence of other children as well as timing and cause of death. And here's what they found. So when they looked at the data, it was an average of 18 years following the death of their child. So the parents would be about 50, 53 years old. Bereaved parents reported more depressive symptoms, poorer well-being, and more health problems, and were more likely to have experienced a depressive episode and marital disruption than were the comparison parents. So I, I want to bring up the fact that you can have depressive symptoms without having a depressive episode. A depressive episode is much more serious. Depressive symptoms could be just like, I'm feeling down, I don't enjoy, you know, things I used to, like it, on their own. Whereas a depressive episode, you have to have a certain number of these symptoms and have them for a certain amount of time. So it's more serious. And they did find that recovery from grief was associated with having a sense of life purpose and having additional children. But there was no relation to the cause of death or the amount of time since the death. So you might think that if the child died, you know, unfortunately, if a child died, died violently or if it was a really bad medical condition that they weren't prepared for, that it would be harder for them to recover. But they actually didn't find that was true. They did find that if the person was able to garner a sense of purpose in their life and have additional support in a stronger marriage and more children, then they they could recover from this a little bit more easily. And it's important to mention also that when we say things like easily, it doesn't mean those people didn't struggle. It just means that they had some advantages that 
you know, people who, you know, ended their marriages or had no other children, you know, they didn't have those advantages. So, of course, it's going to be something that's difficult, even in the best of circumstances. So this is something that is truly traumatic and will cause a lot of problems in a person's life. And I think in a kind of lighter way, we see some of that, at least at a distance in San Andreas. I don't think it's necessarily the main theme of the movie, but it is part of the engine that kind of makes the film go. So we wanted to take a minute to actually talk about the psychological effects. All right, so that's it for our psychological section. Uh, We're going to take a little break, and then we'll come back with Miranda Sajak to talk about San Andreas. Hello, my name is Andrew. I'm the host of The Last New Wave, the podcast that looks at the wide and varied nature of Australian cinema. If you've ever seen an Australian film and thought, man, I wish more people could see that, then this show aims to do just that. By bringing you reviews of the latest Australian films, as well as retrospective looks at notable and forgotten films from Australia's history, The Last New Wave aims to help further the audience of Australian cinema. We also aim to deliver looks behind the scenes with interviews with directors, producers, and actors of Australian films, such as the director of The Man from Hong Kong, Brian Trenchard-Smith, and the director of all this mayhem, Eddie Martin. So, make sure to check out The Last New Wave by heading over to abfilmreview.com for episodes, or following on Twitter or Facebook at The Last New Wave. Alright, so we're back. We're back to talk about the movie. So, uh, we always talk about our history with these movies, and of course, there can't be too much. It just came out in 2015. Uh, for yep. me, this was a movie that, like, okay, so... Uh, I have a pretentious streak in me. I will I will freely admit that. I have these moments where I'm yep. like, uh, I'm so above this. I'm not going to watch that. So I saw the trailer for San Andreas and I was like, oh, God, this looks terrible. I'm not going to watch this. And honestly, if if The Rock hadn't been in it, I probably never would have seen it. Like, if I'm being honest, like I would have just totally skipped it. But I'm like, God, I am so I'm so easily charmed by that guy that I'll, yeah. fine, fine. I'll go watch it. And you know what? When I watched it. I really enjoyed it. I mean, it's not, this is, I mean, if you look at the kind of stats on it, it's got like a 6.1 on IMDb, which is pretty low for IMDb. It's got a 43 Metacritic score. It's not a movie that's going to like change your life or blow you away. Um, But for me, it was kind of everything that I expected it to be in, in mostly good ways. Like actually had a really good time with this. And it made me think about the fact that we used to have movies like this all the time in the seventies, these like disaster movies. And I think it's, it's interesting. Like we've, I think in terms of film, especially in major release films, we either go way dumber than this or way smarter than this. You know, like Michael Bay has a career because of the lowest common denominator. Like, let's be honest. Um, And this is like a little bit above that. But it's certainly not, you know, thought provoking material or anything. But it's that weird kind of middle range. And it was actually like it was it was a really comfortable movie for me to watch like it was it didn't demand too much of you and it also didn't completely insult your intelligence yeah those are all all really true about this movie um and i love that you mentioned that these are the kinds of movies we used to have because it really is that um almost more than anything else like it it taps into uh movie nostalgia in a way that i can't think of too many other recent movies that do um you know, whether it's an indie or a blockbuster, it's really hard to find that movie nostalgia when you go to see a movie. And this movie absolutely captures that. And for me, um, I'm an action movie junkie. Uh, as you know, we've discussed this before. Well, yeah, a uh, little a little behind the scenes. I gave Miranda like seven choices. And this yeah. is the one she was like, San Andreas. We're definitely yeah, doing that one. Like, so. We have to see this one. Um, and I actually 
I think I saw this opening weekend and it's, it's, I don't always do that, but I think I saw the trailer and I kind of had the same feeling you did because I'm also a movie snob. I'm an action movie fan and a movie snob. They exist. Um, they coexist. <laughs> it's a thing. In my brain. <laughs> um, but uh, I, you know, I, I had that same reaction when I saw the trailer. I was like, wow, this is going to be just devastatingly terrible. I have to see it. You know, that was like my, that was my immediate reaction. Um, so I basically, uh, you know, I, I kind of did that. Like I, um, I went out opening weekend and I saw it and just had a, a great time in the theater. Um, you know, I didn't have to think too hard, which I really love doing with movies. I'm not a non thinker when I watch movies, but with this one, I was like, Oh, I don't have to great. Like I can just set that aside. I can go on this wild ride with the rock. Um, you know, we, we can watch a whole lot of buildings collapse and it can just be fun. Uh, and it yeah. really was that, like, it was just a fun, I don't care experience. Um, and I had a lot of fun with it. So I definitely, I felt like I went in with like absolutely no expectations. I went in with like, I am going to hate this. It's going to be the worst thing ever, but I just can't not see it. Um, and then I just ended up enjoying myself a lot. So I think there's just the enjoyability factor, um, alone is, is kind of worth seeing it for. Yeah, totally agree. And if people want to see, uh, movies kind of like this, like check out some older movies, check out like the Poseidon adventure and the towering inferno, like, like these movies do exist. There was a time when they were actually really popular to be made, like just these escapist action fantasies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, right. volcano. Like there's so many totally. where it's just like something terrible is happening and the world is like cracking down the middle and everybody's going to die. And yeah. Right. We just, just we just actually talked about this on our last episode on one of our last episodes when we were reviewing Guy Ritchie's King Arthur movie, how like not every movie is made on the same scale. Like you can't judge yeah. movies like you're not going to go see a movie like like this or like Volcano and give it the it shouldn't be on the same scale as like the latest Coen Brothers movie. Like it's it's a different audience, yeah. you know, and this and this, I think, really accesses its audience. It does a good job of that. So, you know, I, I like I, that it knows what it is and it just goes for it, man. Totally. It completely goes for it. it the script is exactly we're going to get to it, but the script is, I feel like, exactly what it should be for this, as many weird things as are in it and as many complaints as I have about it. And I do have some. Um, I It's just exactly what it should. Like, I feel like if I was reading it for whatever studio made this, I would say, yep, this is exactly what you guys are looking for. Recommend. Go give it your money. It has the rock. It's going to make a bank. Like, just, you know, just go for it. You know, right. um, and I feel like that's sort of what they were thinking. And, yeah. and it worked. Yeah. All right. So the first thing we'll talk about is, is the direction. And this is so funny to me because I just looked up the director, uh, Brad Payton. So let's take a look at his filmography really briefly. So his first uh, feature film was Cats and Dogs, The Revenge of Kitty Galore. So uh, <laughs> that the sequel to Cats and Dogs. And then he made Journey to the Mysterious Island. So not exactly a well-known director, but, you know – Three years later, with just doing like a, a TV series in between, then he gets San Andreas, this big budget spectacle, which which makes no sense in my mind. I would have loved to have been at that meeting where someone yeah. brought up Brad Payton, like that's the guy we need for San Andreas. Uh, but also, yeah. I did not realize this, but uh, San Andreas Two has been announced, uh, and oh, he's yeah. attached to direct that. So oh, so yes, so so we <laughs> may get more. Um, 
So, uh, in terms of uh, directorial choices in this movie, and yes, it's a big action spectacle and lots of special effects, but there are still, like, he has, I think, a fair amount of control over some of that, and there are some choices that are that are not just based on special effects. And one of the first things I noticed, so the opening scene in this movie, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, has this, you know, I guess, teenage girl uh, driving on this mountain road, doing dangerous things, like looking at her phone. And I actually really like this yeah. sequence because there's two separate yes. close calls that as an audience, you're like, yeah. you're already bracing yourself because you're going to see San Andreas. So either yeah. she's going to crash or the earthquake's going to happen right away or something is yeah. going to go down. And I like that there's not one but two moments where you think she's going to crash and she does it. So even if you're that asshole who's like, well, I knew she wasn't going to get hit that first time. Well, and you're wrong the second time, too. And I like that they string that out and they don't make it a like, well, she was a bad driver, so this happened to her. I really like that choice to begin this movie. And it, of course, leads into, you know, our first kind of action sequence of the movie. And talk about getting started early. I mean, what's it, like 90 seconds into the movie? We have a car yeah. tumbling down a mountain side so i really like that yeah yeah i love that too um i think that's a great opener and like you said i i kind of love that she, there were two really close calls like she deserved to smash into a mountain by the time she got through like <laughs> texting and swerving and like she's on this like precipice anyway um you know and it completely, I mean, nobody deserves to smash into a mountain really, but you know, she just, she is doing just the worst driving. She's making really bad driving decisions. Especially um, considering where she is. I mean, it's bad enough to check your phone on a straightaway, but come on. Yeah. Or like at a stop sign (laughs) versus like when you're like driving on like this really narrow mountain curvy road where like they're just, there's a drop off next to you and that's it. Like, she just she's making very bad choices um and and so uh yeah i definitely um i enjoyed that quite a bit i i wrote that down too i i i took note of that as well and i think um something that's interesting about that as well is that it's a uh it's one of those things that kind of sets up the fact that like you know, whether or not somebody is making bad choices, whether or not somebody is doing something good or something bad, um, you know, a disaster can hit at any time, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought that that was kind of a nice setup because it really is like, you just don't, you don't know, like you have no idea when that could hit. And so it clearly like is a running theme throughout the film that this kind of thing can happen whenever wherever uh, because it is ultimately a disaster that hits her it's an avalanche it's not you know her texting it's not her you know drinking whatever it's that like the world decides to fight back basically right um which is also the theme of this movie but um <laughs> you know it just it's it's great like i thought it was a really great open and i love that yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I also think from a directorial perspective, I think Peyton handles these blunt transitions really well because it is a disaster movie, especially one about earthquakes where you don't necessarily get a lot of warnings. Like if you have a, you know, if you're watching Twister, you know, you're you're looking at the weather patterns and you can see where it's going to go and where it's going to come. And in this, you never know when it's going to hit. And that could be really bad for a movie because these transitions yeah. are not subtle and they're really blunt and they come out of nowhere. But I think he handles it really well. And I think I first noticed it in the the scene with our um, – uh, if I can grab her name. You know, with Emma's character when she's at the restaurant 
you know, talking to yes. that horrible woman. And then all of a sudden they just show, and it's a little, I guess, Jurassic Park-ish. They just show the shaking silverware uh, and, yes. and then everything hits. But it would yes. be easy to either build it up too much or build it up too little. And I think he handles it really well. Yeah, I think the transitions throughout are really great because this is definitely a movie built on sequences and there's a bunch of them in a row. Um, you know, you have your first earthquake in Nevada sequence and you have your second earthquake sequence. And like there's definitely like a bunch of sequences that are kind of linked together um, and you can make very clear cuts as to when they transition. But I think mm -hmm. he does it in a really smooth way so you don't ever feel lost or like it's kind of abrupt. Um, it always feels very natural to the flow of the film. Right. Yeah. I also think uh, – so there's a lot of death in this movie, um, not only kind of off screen with our character's family, but just generally because it is a disaster movie. And I think it also hones in on those kind of older, uh, older disaster movies we were talking about where there are lots of people who die who are innocent, um, but there are lots of people yes. who die who are not, who are kind of villainous yes. characters like – you know, you know, when you look at the morality of these characters, these are not the people you're rooting for. And I love that those deaths are extra brutal. Um, and, it, yes. and it really ties into that old style of like in these old uh, in these older movies, usually like if main characters die, they are making a sacrifice for their loved ones. Um, yeah. If random people die, it usually happens off screen or really quickly. But when the bad characters die, it is brutal and vicious. And I mean, there's there's one that it involves like uh, a container falling off of a of a giant ship that lands directly yeah. on one of these characters who we are designed not to like. And I love that he doesn't pull those punches in those moments because it would be easy to just be like, and then he probably died there. Let's move on or like show his death yeah. and have him have some form of redemption. And I love that there are some people that just don't get redemption in this movie because that's kind of how disasters work. Yeah. And I really liked too that um, like, as much as these sort of uh, brutal death kind of hit these bad guys, which they absolutely deserve um, based on how they're built as characters, uh, you know, as much as that happens and as much as that's a lot of fun um, to watch, you know, very cathartic. Um, I also enjoy that this is a movie that, I feel like no matter what your age range is, I mean, I probably wouldn't show it to like a three-year-old, but like, you know, once you hit 10, like this movie is totally fine to watch. And mm -hmm. I think um, that's another great thing that he does is that he makes it very accessible and he doesn't overdo it on the gore factor. Like he doesn't linger on these people, um, you know, getting crushed or, you know, bones broken or, you know, anything that's like really like protruding and gross. Yeah. Like, you know, I didn't think really about that, awesome but, fun. but that's a great point. Like even in the very beginning and, you know, we'll talk about later the Hoover Dam sequence, like there yeah. is a sequence where a little girl gets saved and, you know, a person gives his life for her and just tells her, close your eyes, like, don't look at this. Yeah. And I think that kind of actually sets up the rest of the action scenes in the movie. There's no scenes of bodies being torn apart or limbs, you know, being lost or like you said, you know, bones sticking out of the skin. There's none of that. And you could do that in a movie like this and get away with it because it is a disaster yeah. movie. And, and you're right. I'm glad he didn't go that route. Yeah, I think it just it makes it. As much as it is a movie where a whole lot of people die, um, it's a family-friendly film still, um, mm -hmm. and I, I do appreciate that. I do appreciate that, like, you know, your kid to your grandma could go see this movie, and it's it's accessible, and it's um, 
not inappropriate in that regard. I mean, you obviously have to make choices for your own family, but nonetheless, like in a, as a general rule, this is definitely a four quadrant film. Um, it appeals to all four, you know, young and old demographics. Um, and I, I really liked that about it, that it didn't, it could have been a gore fest very easily and very quickly. Um, and it wasn't, and that was nice. Right. I think something the director tried to do, which he probably failed at, um, is subvert expectations throughout the movie and, and put, you know, our main characters at risk. But maybe I'll just ask you, did you, did you ever, did you feel at any moment in this movie, like one of the members of this family weren't going to make it out? No, (laughs) Um, no, I did not. I mean, it is, I mean, I think it, it harkens a little bit back to that nostalgia we were talking about, but one of the things that I definitely find in this movie is, um, is first of all, you know, the lack of risk for the main characters is is pretty clear. Like you just right. you never think that any of them aren't are gonna die or, or maybe or even gonna get like seriously injured. You know, there's like maybe one point near the end where you sort of feel that she might get injured, but you're not you don't feel as though she's ever gonna die. Um and so, it just uh, feels you know, like it would be too much, right? Like especially <laughs> that she was drowning, you know, just just like her sibling who had died. And I was like, yeah. okay, there's no way because there's no the way they set no that way. up, there's no coming back from that, from our main character. Yeah. Like, okay, like, yeah. you know, you made up with your wife, you know, your your other daughter drowned, but you've kind of, you're trying to move past that. And now your older daughter drowns. You're like, okay, it's too much. It's too much. The scene that, yeah, the scene that I kept thinking was- about was when Emma was, uh, he was trying to save Emma on the rooftop near the very beginning of this movie. And at first, like, you know, he grabs her and then she like gets enveloped by like the dust of this building. Yes. And, yeah. and which is a great shot and a beautiful shot but Beautiful. He, but you could tell he was trying to make you think like oh he's going to lose his wife right here and that was the only moment that maybe they could have gone that direction but yeah. it was so early in the movie that you're like okay yeah. she's she's got to make it past like the first 30 minutes like there's no way yeah. we're going to yeah. kill her off that soon but he kept yeah, trying he to put not. them in danger you know you have uh, helicopter crashes and everything else yeah. and i don't know how you fix that uh, but there definitely was never a point where I thought any of the stars of this movie weren't making it out. Yeah, no, I, n- I never felt that way either. And I think um, I think they did a, you know, a decent job of always having them at risk, but never having them at mortal risk. Um, right. Like my feeling was definitely throughout, you know, they might break an arm or they might bust a leg or something, but like, they're going to make it like, they're going to be okay. Um, so, you know, that was definitely like you, I, I never had a feeling or a deeper feeling, you know, there's always sort of that surface feeling of like, Oh my God. But like, you know, you never have that deeper feeling that they're actually going to die. Right. Yeah. So, uh, I want to talk about the one and I'm probably in the minority here. There's only one moment in this movie that makes me groan out loud. And this is a movie that if you go in too serious, you probably could be groaning a lot during this movie. Yeah. And it's near oh, the yeah. it's actually near the very end of the film when, you know, you know the the bridge is all busted and of course there's a flag draped over it and you have yeah. the rock saying and now we rebuild and I'm like, okay, this movie doesn't need that. This is not yeah. necessary. But the the no. thing the thing that's really frustrating about it is I love the shot right after that because you have this really cool zoom out aerial shot of all the damage and everything that this yeah. city and this country has gone through. And I was like, that is really cool. But you ruined it with yeah. that line because I'm still – my eyes are still in the back of my head uh, from groaning yeah. at that. But I think that's one thing that – 
um, that Brad Payton does really well is these these big shots, these big moments. And yes. of course, some of it's CGI and some of it's not. Yes. So it's hard to kind of take apart like what he had a part in and what is done in post. But I think those sequences really work. And in a movie like this where, you know, you're talking about the whole of San Francisco is going to be destroyed – you better make those big moments work. And I think he really yeah. does. It's just a shame that yeah. there's that, I don't even know yeah. the right word for it, that schmaltz right before yeah, it. And it's like, line. it felt <laughs> like, it felt like, uh, you know, a Peter Berg movie starring Mark Wahlberg. Yeah. Like that's, that's what it felt like. Yeah. And I was just like, we were having so much fun. Why did you ruin it yeah. right at the end? Yeah. And that always probably will yeah. always bug me every time I watch this. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, once that American flag hits, I'm rolling my eyes. Um, Same. You know, first of all, we don't need that. Like, that is not what this movie is about. Like, you know, I get that it's supposed to be because it's like you have this, you know, rescue fire guy who's like already served terms, you know, in overseas, like in the war. And yeah, like, but we get kind of we get out. lip service to that, right? We get one line yeah, in the beginning of the film. That. It's At not the like. Beginning- it's not like that's they, not what the movie is about. Yeah, if they had had moments uh, where he was like looking at his at his dog tags and like really remembering yeah. what happened, sure. But this is just like it's like what? Why? How did we get to the patriotism? So the I don't understand. Yeah, it, it was so on the nose, and I mean, it's obviously meant to appeal to a very specific demographic by doing that. But <laughs> yes, <laughs> it just was. It was very over the top. Um, and then the rebuild line, like you said, for me, um, I think that maybe one of the bigger lines of the movie that really jars you and kind of throws you out of the movie. Um, partly because it's the wrong line there because as a rescue person, his job would not be to rebuild now. His right. job would be to go in and save everybody who is still injured or dying. Maybe or go do your job for someone else other than your blood relatives now. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Like maybe help a couple of the other thousand people or million people who are now at risk. Right. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it it doesn't work on a plot or character level, and it also doesn't work on an emotion level. So it's just one of those lines that's just terrible, and they should have never never made that line happen. Yeah. Um, you know, and it obviously that line is meant to be there for a very specific reason. Again, for the same reason the American flag is there. Um, but it's just like cut. First of all, cut one or the other because you don't need both. Seriously. Um, second of all. <laughs> You know, uh, that line would have been what I would have cut, you know, yeah. um, because it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And it's wrong for that character to even begin there because he's spent this entire movie showing us that particularly from the beginning, um, you know, and this was another thing that I actually really liked and we can get into it a little bit more in depth. And I think we will probably later. But um, one of the things that I wrote in my notes um, was that they set up really clear contrast in this movie um, where the rock, uh, you know, saves that teen who he doesn't know at the beginning um, and where the Asian American guy saves a little girl who he doesn't know. Mm -hmm. And where Ben and Ollie who barely know um, Blake, who's the rock's daughter um, rush in to save her. Um, So you have these really great contrasts of all of those people saving, you know, people they barely know versus the stepdad who (laughs) just like abandons her. Oh, Daniel. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> um, but you know, you have a movie built on this sort of theme, like these themes of doing all of this selfless stuff, and then you get to this line that's just like, "We're gonna all work together and build some buildings," and it's like, "No, you're not. You're gonna go see people. That's what you right. do. That <laughs> is what you do. Yeah, 
Uh, yeah. I totally agree. See, now after talking to you, I hate that line even more because I didn't even yeah. like I didn't even bring up the fact that it doesn't fit in with Ray's character. And it absolutely doesn't like it does not At work. All. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the acting. So I'm going to start in a place uh, that is probably surprising. I'm not going to start with The Rock. I'm not going to start with Carlo Gugino or Alexandra Daddario. I'm going to start with Paul Giamatti. So Please do. All right. So. All right. Paul Giamatti, and rightly so, got a lot of shit for his role in this movie. Um, yeah. But here's the thing. Okay, so I'm going to defend him a little bit. He is given right. an impossible job here. Yes. His job is to tell uh, tell everybody what's happening and scream yes. and yell. Like that's – and it doesn't matter who you – I don't care. You cast Daniel Day-Lewis. You could cast Julianne yes. Moore. I don't, I don't care who yeah, you put matter. in here. It, there's nothing you could do with this. And God bless him for just going all out. Like you, yeah. you cannot tell me that Paul Giamatti phones in performances. Like he's just, no. he's going to give it. And I love that he did. And does all of it work? No. And some of the most ridiculous stuff in the script, which we'll talk about later, he is saddled yeah. with, but I think yeah. like given what he's had to work with, he's fine here. Um, yeah. But it seemed like he became like, this is a movie that no critics are going to deride for performances because it's not, it's not subtle. It's not deep. And he, I feel yeah. like got all of the vitriol for, for this movie. Yeah. And I still don't think he deserves it. Um. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. Like I, I don't think he deserves the vitriol that he got for this movie at all. Um. You know, he's given the most thankless role of any of the roles in the film. Yeah. Um, And like you say, you know, we'll get to it, but some of the just, absolute direct lines of dialogue that you just can't even imagine ever anybody saying or writing um, Jesus just really double down on it. And, um, you know, there's an extent and I kind of wrote this in here. Um, there's an extent to which I felt like, uh, Paul Giamatti and Archie Punjabi are just in a different movie from everybody else. Um, <laughs> yeah, totally. And I'm okay with that. Like I'm fine with it because they're in a movie where they really believe that there's an earthquake happening. And I wasn't really <laughs> sure that anybody actually, anybody else actually believed it. Right. Um, but you know, it's fine. Like it's, it's totally fine. It does work for their characters. It is what they're, it's exactly what they were hired to do. Right. Um, you know, and I, and I do think that both of them really did, like you say, like they doubled down on it. They, um, neither of them phoned it in, you know, they, they brought an element of scenery chewing that maybe was a little bit too chewed, but that's okay. Because in this kind of movie, you sort of have to have like the sciencey guy warning (laughs) everybody that what's going on and you gotta (laughs) watch out because it's coming, you know? Um, so you need that, like you need the details of why this is all happening. Um, and basically his job is like exposition dude. Um, yep. but that's fine, you know, cause you, you need exposition dude to, to let you know, like why this is all going on. Otherwise you're sitting around being like, wait, why is this happening? You know? Um, so uh, I think that he does a really great job with what's a very, very, like probably the worst written character in the entire thing. Yes. Um, and, and it's just, you know, he, he brings it, he just, he, he brings every <laughs> bit of energy to that. And, and you believe that like, even if it was three in the morning and they were on take 45, that he would give that yeah. same exact like <laughs> deep performance. So he does it. He, he did a good job. Yeah. And I, I like that you brought up that it feels like they're in a different movie and they probably felt like that too, because you know, yeah. Not that I didn't realize it necessarily, but you bringing it up makes me think of it. Like there is never a scene between them and our our main family. 
So oh. like they probably never even crossed each other on set. So he had no idea yeah. what kind of performance anyone else was putting here. He's like, okay, I guess, Whoa. I guess this is what we're doing. Like, let's, let's go for it. So that yeah. actually makes That's a lot of sense. Yeah. And I mean, that's the kind of thing, too, where if it hadn't been cast with The Rock, I mean, like you said, you saw that he was in it and you were like, all right, I'm going to see this movie. Um, But if it hadn't been cast with somebody like that who brings such charm and such, um, you know, lightheartedness to literally everything he does, um, it's uh, it would have been a very different movie. Um, And it could have been a kind of movie where everybody was taking it so seriously and where everybody was you know, really in it um, and where it really felt life or death every moment, you know, Um, and it could have been that kind of movie. And really the primary reason that it isn't is because of who the lead is. So, um, you know, I I can't look at Giamatti and Punjabi and say that they made even the wrong acting choices. I think they made the only acting choices that they really (laughs) should have made given what they were given, um, especially with the lack of knowledge of what was going on in the rest of the set. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So let's talk about uh, the impossibly pretty family uh, that is cast (laughs) in this movie. So this was actually my first thought when I saw the cast list for the movie before I saw it. So you have Dwayne Johnson, Carlo Gugino, and Alexandra Daddario. Um, Like all impossibly Hollywood beautiful. And I was just like – You know, I I get that when we, you know, we think about like, oh, two really pretty pretty people have a kid, have a kid, they have a pretty kid. And like when it comes to genetics, that's not really how that works. Uh, So (laughs) sometimes it just it just doesn't quite work out. But everyone in this movie is stunning to look at, which is which is great. Uh, My only complaint about it is like, you know, we'll probably talk about it more in writing. But they set up in this movie Alexandra Daddario's character later as being like very – you know, uh, very aware of her situation. Yeah. And she's, she's kind of a hero, which I love. What I don't necessarily love on a, on a kind of script level is that they, they introduce her like lounging around in her bikini. It's like they had to, they had to like balance it. Like it's an action movie, guys. Don't worry. Don't worry. There's tits and ass in this movie. It's going to be fine. And it's such a weird, when you look at where the movie goes, it's and not yeah. that not that I'm going to be the guy complaining about Alexandra Daddario sitting around in a bikini. I, mean, I enjoy <laughs> that as much as anybody, but like from a movie perspective, it's it's a very odd choice. But but yeah. what did what did you think about like let's let's kind of take a you know one on one. So what did you think of of the Rock's performance? For me, I think you really hit it on the head a second ago that if you cast someone else and this becomes self serious, this movie doesn't work and it's not enjoyable. Um, I mean, I love him. Uh, you know, I, I think that I will forgive a lot of problems in other areas of a film if you put him in the center of the film. Right. Um, because he's so watchable. Uh, he's just, he seems so genuinely fun and nice. And I don't know, maybe he's just like a terrible person, but I don't think he is. Like, I think he really (laughs) just is a nice guy, um, who's just charming and, I, I just I feel like, um, you know, I mean, working in the industry, kind of you meet a lot of different actors and different people at different levels. And I feel like he's the kind of guy who if you met him, he would make you feel like you were the most important person in the room. And right. I think that he just exudes that kind of positive, upbeat. I'm listening to you. I care about you kind of energy. Uh, and I think it works for this. So, you know, for me, 
I think he did a great job with what ultimately I'm, you know, I mean, it's not, you know, Tom Stoppard level writing. It's not this, <laughs> not like, quite. you know, genius Tony <laughs> award winning script, you know, whatever. Um, it's fine. It's, it's, it's exactly what it should be for the movie that it is. Um, but I think he really elevates it because he does bring that charm to the table. Um, and I think that that's, uh, really rare. So I think yeah. that he does a good job. Yeah. I think uh, in my head, I was kind of joking that um, I think that's the reason the kind of dead child angle was brought up. Cause why else would yeah. a, why else would a marriage with, with Dwayne Johnson end? Like there's no, he's so charming. There's he's so no good reason. looking. Yeah. He's so nice in this movie. He doesn't seem like really dark and really upset about things. Like he just seems like very happy go lucky. Yeah. And he, I mean, he's a hero for a living in this yeah. movie. Yeah. So it's like, why would you ever? So like they had to introduce this really dark subplot for us to understand why Carlo Gugino would, would ever leave. Like, ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why would you leave the rock? Right. Yeah, no, I agree. Like, I think that they, um, I think they brought in the right subplot, but I do think that it, it really does have to explain the fact that she left him and there's no, re no reasonable reason right. uh, at all. Otherwise. Yeah. So speaking of uh, Carla Gugino, who's one of my favorites, I, I think she's, I don't think she's, you know, the greatest actress working, but I think she, she's one of those actresses really, she's really fun to watch. Like she's when, yeah. when she does show up in a movie, I always kind of brighten up and I'm like, Oh, there she is. Yeah. This is going to be great. Um, and she has a, she has a couple really, really good, really funny and also kind of dark moments in this movie. And I think, I think it would be very easy for her to come off as nothing but a damsel in distress. Uh, and she kind of is, I mean, that is the role she's playing, but, I do feel like because of what she brings to it, she's much more of a complete character than I ever would have expected in a movie like this. Um, no, I agree. I think she did a great job. Uh, you know, it's it's tough. You know, you see me complain a lot on Twitter if you ever follow me there um, about, you know, women kind of getting relegated to the wife role, um, mm -hmm. which happens a lot. Um, and, you know, this would be the kind of movie that I think would actually have been uh, kind of fun to see a gender swap on. But, um, yeah. you know, it. Nonetheless, uh, you know, I think she does a great job with what she's given. And I I believed her. Um, you know, I believed that she was this woman who was struggling with this ex and, you know, trying to and I believe that she really cared about her daughter. Um, and I believe that she, uh, <clears throat> you know, had this sort of dark past that she hadn't ever really dealt with and kind of needed to get out on the table um, and was willing to confront while maybe he wasn't. And, you know, just basically everything that she did, I believed it. And mm -hmm. that's really what you need in this movie. You need to believe that these characters are who they say they are and that they are going through what they're going through. And she brought it and and I totally bought her. Um, and also, um, I don't know if we're there in casting yet, but uh, that bitchy woman that she's talking to Ooh. at the um, restaurant before mm -hmm. the earthquake goes down. Um, did you look that up? Did you realize that that was Kylie? Minogue? I just I looked it up right now. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I would never have thought like I looked at her and thought like she looks familiar and meant to look yeah. it up and never did until this moment. Wow. That yeah. on the list of people I would have thought she wouldn't have been on it. Like that's no, that's so weird. <laughs> she's like, really I mean, good at playing bitchy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know we're getting into other characters, but that to me. That was just such a weird cameo because it didn't make any sense. Yes. Um, and I mean, maybe she has a song in it. I don't know. Like maybe. I didn't look up the soundtrack. <laughs> um, but it just didn't make any like we saw it in the credits when we were watching. We were rewatching it. Um 
And we kind of looked at each other and we were like, who was what? Kylie Minogue in this? And then we like had to go back and like, you know, we were like, could she have been that bitchy restaurant woman? Oh my God. And she was, of course. Yeah. Um, there it is. But it's just, it's, it's it's such a weird cameo because it doesn't, she has maybe four lines um, and she's there for, you know, 35 seconds of screen time. So it's just a strange choice, but I don't yeah. know, maybe something that's newer and maybe she really loves disaster movies and it always wanted to be in one. I don't know. <laughs> I hope um, that that is what happened. I hope, that that's I hope true. so too. I hope that she just loves disaster movies <laughs> and had her whole life had wanted to be in one. And this was her opportunity. Um, yes. I really hope that's what it was, but <laughs> I don't know. So you mentioned earlier, um, like believing, believing the character of Eva. So what about Alexandra Daddario's character, which I love that they have her be really capable and is you know has learned stuff from her father did you believe her performance in that way um i i did uh you know kind of like you said like there is that that one sour note with her where you intro her in a bikini for no reason um and it's just it has no plot point there's no there's nothing that that's related to at all it's just here's a chick in a bikini um right. <laughs> here you go guys bye you know um, so uh, there's no reason for that particular moment, um, you know, and and I'm sure you could stretch really, really stretch and say, well, you know, it's because it's water and the whole thing. Is oh, about boy. Swimming and, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm sure there's a bro out there who's really trying to justify it with that, but he's wrong because <laughs> it's just not needed. Um, and, uh, you know, for that, it is it did irritate me a little bit um that that it was that and that then it led into oh but like let's find a phone and a phone line and here we go we can call a a helicopter now you know like it just it was so weird um so for me like that was a that was just a a weird um it it was sort of a contrast that didn't work Um, and i think she does a really good job with this role. Um, I actually love her in this role. I think she's really likable. Um, I think she's really fun to watch. Uh, I like that she is smart and that she does know what to do next and that she does think, okay, if, if this doesn't work, I have a plan B and I, you know, I'm going to figure out what that is. Um, and I like that she propels her storyline in a very overt way. Um, like she makes a lot of decisions, which I liked. Um, She's not, things don't just happen to her. She is actually, she has agency, which is good. Yes. Which I really appreciate it. And I think that is a huge writing, uh, a great writing thing that they did, um, that I really am so grateful for them for doing because they didn't have to do. Um, so I really did appreciate that. Um, and I think that they did a good job with that. Yeah. I mean, I think she did a great job. I think she was just really well cast actually i mean you did note and you're absolutely correct that this is an unrealistically good-looking family um <laughs> but otherwise i think that she was really well cast and i right. think that she did a really good job uh demonstrating her just her smarts like she's a smart girl yeah. and i like that and i think that they also kind of set that up a little bit because they're like okay well she's going up to college so you mm-hmm. know that she you know she, I mean, she obviously comes from like an upper class family. They have money, um, you know, which is interesting. I always wonder what Carla Gugino's character does for a living because The Rock obviously probably doesn't make all that much money. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I did, um, I did like that, uh, you know, they did a pretty decent job of, um, of the casting. And I think especially mm-hmm. with the daughter, I think that she really sold it for me. Yeah. And she is someone who I would have thought would be the weak link 
in this movie, like when you look at it at face value. But I, I do agree. I think she, she did a good job here. And, you know, it's there is, you know, not to be like, oh, well, we've got to defend the pretty people. But it's it is kind of weirdly nice to see someone who is stereotypically beautiful also be capable and also be intelligent yeah. that you can you yeah. can that that can exist. You don't have to have the stereotypical, quote unquote, smart girl look a certain way. Like I, I like yeah. that 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 works here. Um, yeah, I mean, I did, I did write in my notes. I was like, she's hot and smart, um, right. but I was happy about it. Like right. I was, I didn't, I, I wrote it sort of sarcastically, but I was also happy about it because I thought that, she, that it was well done. All right. So let's talk about uh, the script uh, as such, uh, as such as it is. Um, so um, <laughs> it was interesting. I was talking to you uh, kind of off, off mic about this, about how I was shocked at how many comments I had in my notes about the writing. Uh, and yeah. not all of them were bad because this is a movie that that probably screams like, oh, God, the writing's going to be so terrible. Um, yeah. So we do have all these moments uh, with Paul Giamatti. Uh, and I found myself wondering, like, how much exposition do we really need? And I feel like it was some of it was just put in there to break up the action a little bit. So it's not exhausting. Yes. Like, let's go back again and talk about, you know, oh, you're going to feel it in New York and blah, blah, blah. You know, and there's, and there's so many things. I actually looked this up, like how scientifically af- uh, accurate some of this stuff was. And actually, uh, some of the stuff that I found the most ridiculous when I was listening to it was actually relatively accurate. Like the whole, oh. you'll, you'll feel this in New York, like that. You're, it's not going to be an earthquake in New York but you'll feel movement you know and i was like okay but it's interesting because you have to you have to balance that as a screenwriter i think like things that are accurate and things that make sense at face value right and that like when you hear that it's so extreme that you're just like i don't even do we really need that level of stakes can it just be like san francisco is doomed like that's not enough millions of people dying isn't enough stakes for you we have to be like oh the empire state building is gonna shake too like it's like okay calm down like let's let's relax a little bit and then there's that whole that whole thing about this like super fault like a fault connecting with another fault connecting with another fault to make this you know super fault and that uh i looked up is like almost impossible and it's so unneeded there's so many moments yeah. in the script with the exposition that you're like, we got this all across in Paul Giamatti's first scene that like yeah. earthquakes are really bad, folks. They cause a lot of damage. Look at this video. Yeah. OK, and now we can predict and this one's going to be even bigger than that. OK, that's really all we need. So I felt like they overdid that a little bit. Yeah, no, I would agree. I think that they did overdo it a little bit. Um, I think that it was uh, a a. Uh, a little too much science um, when they maybe didn't need it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't super bothered by it. I mean, I, I I definitely agree with you that I think they did they did more than was needed. Um, but I think they also I think they structurally felt like they kind of had to fill gaps because, like you say, um, the science sort of exists kind of as a tension builder, um, you know, both mm-hmm. in that it gives us some backstory about what's going to happen. So we get like freaked out, but also in that anytime you cut away from a disaster as it's going on, your, your heart rate is kind of like, wait, but, but send us back there. What's happening? Are they okay? Did they survive? Right. Are they getting out? Are they getting hit again? Like, so it, it really just exists as that tension builder factor. Um, and I think that it, it, I think it did a pretty good job of doing that. Um, you know, I mean, we can we can argue as to how well. I agree with you that I, sure. I'm not sure that I needed the 
whole world is going to fall around us. All of America will be hit. Um, you know, I don't think I needed that necessarily, right. but I definitely, um, I appreciated the setups of the, uh, the Nevada fault leading to the San Andreas fault, which I mean, again, like you say, maybe ridiculous and not a thing that ever happens. <laughs> um, but I did appreciate that as far as a getting me from point A to point B kind of uh, story choice, because sure. I think um, one of the things I wrote down uh, when I was, when I was watching this and I might've written it on Twitter, but I think I wrote down like, Oh my God, there's so many disasters in this movie. Uh, <laughs> but it's like, it really, like there really are so many disasters in this movie. Yep. I mean, it starts with that avalanche and there's, you know, three earthquakes and a tsunami. Um, so it's basically <laughs> like, there's, you know, five five disasters, I guess, in the movie. It's like um, a bad game know. of SimCity back in the day where you yeah, could just unleash like, disasters at any moment. Like, we just I needed mean, Godzilla. That's the only thing yeah, we're missing. Yeah. That's all you need. You just need a monster and then you're good. <laughs> um, but, like, you know, if you don't count The Rock's Marriage, there's five disasters. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's a pretty big disaster movie. Like, there's a lot... Um, there's a lot of disasters just physically in yeah. this movie. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess you need something to to explain yeah, that. You, you can't just, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. So I think the thing that this movie on a script level does well and does poorly is set up. And I'll give an example of each. Yeah. So in the very beginning of this movie, like they hammer home that these two are getting divorced. Like they say it, yeah. they show papers, they show, yeah. you know, uh, the rock looking at old pictures. Like it was just like so blatant that I was yeah. like, I actually, when I remember when I first watched this, I honestly got a little worried. Like, is this going to be so blunt this entire movie? Because I don't know if I can deal with this. Cause it's like really lowest common denominator stuff. Like, you know, he yeah. opens the paper and it all practically has a red stamp that says divorce and then like you know it's just like okay and then he says i'll sign the papers as he drives off angrily which is i think the one moment uh of ray's character that doesn't fit really as 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 well as that line at the end it's just like okay this doesn't fit with everything else that he's done before and everything else that he does after so that didn't work for me but the setup that did work for me was who i have termed douchebag daniel um who is clearly the worst character yeah. in this movie I, I love the setup where, you know, um, where Blake, his uh, his stepdaughter, asks, asks him, you know, why didn't you have kids? And his response mm -hmm. is to show her a picture of a building that he built and be like, this is my baby. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, fuck you. This guy's the worst. So then I when know. when he leaves, you're like, yeah, that fits. That seems like something a character like that would do. So I actually really love that setup. And it's actually super efficient. Like – he shows up and he's really nice to everybody. And then he has that one moment on the, on the plane and you're just like, mm, nope, don't like him. And then the next moment he really has, he is being a coward and running away and then eventually gets his comeuppance. And I think that stuff from a writing perspective was really good and really worked. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that was a great, like it was a great kind of setup payoff sort of sequence um, where I felt as though there was, and like you said, sometimes it is a little bit uh, rocky in, in this particular nice. movie. Um, but I did feel as though that particular sequence um, with the building, this is my child, like, you know, I'm like, hey, oh, guy, whatever. Um, clearly, you, but I mean, it, it sets it up nicely that he does care more about his actual physical architecture projects than he does about humans, um, right. you know, which Ugh. 
you know, as somebody who doesn't want to have kids, you know, I, I do sometimes roll my eyes a little bit at those plot points where, sure. you know, it is like, well, he could just not want to have kids. Um, but I did like that they underline the reason why and that he is, mm-hmm. you know, this career guy. Um, and it it sets up again. I talked about it a little bit earlier, but it sets up a nice contrast with the fact that The Rock is also a career guy. But, you know, despite the fact that he's spending his time saving lives, like and doing actual things to help other people survive, he still managed to take the time to have a child who he also loves and cares for and is willing to, you know, do what he has to do to like save her life, you know, and yeah. had a couple children. Um, so, you know, that's the kind of thing where I, uh, I like that contrast beat. I think it was nicely done. Yeah. I think the other thing this movie does really well is, is pacing. Um, it would be really easy, like you talked about all the disasters in this movie, it would be super easy for it to be so overwhelming. And the thing that happens with a movie like that, I think we've talked about it when we talk about action movies, that there's nothing but action beats, you stop caring. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, yeah. another dangerous situation? Well, we're only 40 minutes into the movie, so I think they'll be okay. And I don't think you really feel that here. I think there's enough, there's the science stuff to break it up, but there's also the really cool stuff with Blake you know, kind of figuring out how to make things work. And I, of course, I also love that they kind of make the guy in this circumstance, they make him the damsel in distress. Like he's yeah. the one who gets injured. She has to constantly help him. Like at first yeah. he helps her get out of the car, but after that he's kind of useless and he doesn't really yeah. know what to do. And I love that yeah, she's the like one who does. His brother is like the smarty. <laughs> oh, don't get me started like, on the don't get me started on the little brother. The worst part of the movie. Good God. Yeah. Every every moment. My book has everything. Shut up. God. I was and, just like, cut, write this character out of this movie. Like, part yeah, of me is like, I get, like, that's how they're going to get to Coit Tower. But then you have all these, like, moments of him like, well, you know, Knob Hill is this. And the Coit, oh, my God. Make it stop. And it's yeah. supposed to be cute. And it just comes off as annoying to me. Maybe that's my, yeah, my childless not- self. But I'm just like, nope. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this was a movie that very much did not need a precocious child character, but decided to have one anyway. Right. Um, like, it very easily could have just been Ben, the British guy, who's a tourist who has happens to have a book of yeah. touristy things with him. Um, and that would have been fine. So it didn't need it, and it chose to do it anyway. Um, yep. And that was, you know... There are there are elements of that that are never going to fully work for me, but it's right. fine. It's what it is. Yeah. So I guess my major question, and I'm I'm not sure what my answer to this would be. So it's totally not fair that I'm going to ask you, but I'm going to do it anyway. So it. <laughs> we talked about like we never really feel like our main characters are at risk at any point in this movie. Do yeah. you feel like it is a better or a worse movie if we lose somebody? If a character dies, if one of our three main character dies, is it a better movie or does it not fit with the movie that's made? Um, it's a good question. Uh, you know, we do see a lot of these kinds of movies where, um, you know, it's a dad who, you know, has a wife and a child and is trying to like save the day for them. Um, and, you know, whether that's like taken um, or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think that th- that we've been seeing kind of a bunch of these kinds of films, not necessarily disaster wise, but action wise. And usually in the first one, at least, uh, usually, you know, kind of everybody survives and, and that's that. Um, I think it would have been a different movie. I don't know if it, if it would have been worse necessarily, but I think it would have been a very different movie if yeah. 
Um, and I would assume that it would be Blake in this case had died uh, because that would be the mirror to the other daughter dying earlier. Right. Um, you know, I think it would have been a very different movie. I think, like you say, I think that their relationship then would not have recovered um, at no all. Like, I think yeah. that would have been that for the marriage. Uh, and I'm not sure that you would be able to make a second one. After I was going to say, we wouldn't get San Andreas 2. You wouldn't get San Andreas 2. Um Electric Boogaloo. Yes. Uh, but I I just, I think that it would have been um, a very different kind of movie. And I think in some ways it would have worked emotionally. Like I think they could have built catharsis into that, uh, you know, especially if they made it so that, you know, The Rock was finally able to cope with his emotions in a deeper way because he obviously didn't after the first death or whatever. Right. Um, so they could have used that as a trigger to let him deal with those things. But I, you know, I don't think that that would have, I think I would have been kind of mad about it. Right. And I think the biggest reason why, um, actually isn't a plot reason, but it's a tone reason. And it's, it right. goes back to what you were saying about kind of not feeling like they were at risk. And then also based on who they cast in the lead role, um, I think when you cast somebody like a Liam Neeson in a lead role, it's not as big of a deal if uh, an important character dies because right. he has that sort of darkness that he carries around with him. Right. Um, but because The Rock is such a light, like, character, actor, person, whatever, um, it becomes a lot harder to do something that uh, that dark right. in a movie where he's a star. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Absolutely. All right, so our last two sections are production value and favorite scenes. So I think there's there's probably going to be some crossover here because so much of the production value is in the action sequences, which are, to me, yeah. the best part of the movie. The only yeah. thing for production value that I really came up with separate from that is I love there's a moment um, – where um, Emma's character is at the top of the building and you think she's going to be saved and then she falls like four or five levels down. Yeah. And I love that when she is saved in that moment, we get the ears ringing uh, sound yeah. effect going on. And I think that does a yeah. good job of putting us in the moment because it's so easy for us to remove ourselves because it's such a big it's a big disaster movie. So it's like, I, I can't relate. There's nothing about this that puts me into it. So I thought that was another really good production design moment is to have that just for a second. So we kind of put ourselves in her position for a moment. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this is a beautiful film. Uh, you know, it's the kind of thing where disaster movies can be very, very cheesy. And there is certainly plenty of cheese to go around in this movie. <laughs> Um, but yeah. I do think that the the CGI and the uh, just the disasters themselves are just absolutely gorgeous. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't it didn't lose that for me. Um, right. You know, I was watching it for the second time when I when I watched this this week just to kind of re remind myself what it was all about and everything that happened. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, there's there are a bunch of things in it that I think are really gorgeous, but um, definitely the disasters themselves are are really beautiful and just really fun to watch. And um, they feel really real. Like, I do feel like those buildings are collapsing and right. I do feel like the ground is opening up and, you know, all that stuff. So that's all stuff that I thought was really great. Um, and are we on our favorite moments? Yet? Yeah, might as well. Let's just let's just jump to it. What's your what's one of your favorite uh, okay. scenes in the movie? Um, I have a I have a few, um, and they're actually smaller elements. Um, one of them is uh, the rock 
the sequence, it's actually a sequence. Um, it's a sequence from when the rock um, steals the truck and beats up the thief <laughs> to uh, when he trades in the stolen truck for an airplane. That's great. Um, that whole sequence for me is just, it's so, it's funny and it's upbeat and it's, it's lighthearted and we kind of needed that in the middle of all this disaster. Yeah. Um, so I really liked that. I thought that that was like a really, um, a, a nice light kind of, uh, sequence. And, and I love that he does that. I love that he like, he's like, I'm just going to take this truck. And then he like meets these old people who like need a truck. And he's like, why don't you guys take this truck that I stole? You know? And it's just like, so and I love uh, that in that moment, they bring in like what the other character is wearing. Like you can see yeah. it, it works from a character perspective where yeah. Ray is a character who is constantly using his environment and he sees this guy have a yeah. aviation center hat on and he wants to, okay, yeah. let me, let me go to the next thing. Let me figure out. Yeah. And he's always thinking about the next step. And I, and I like yeah. that it didn't feel contrived. It didn't feel like yeah. well let's right away for him to figure out where a plane would be like just have this guy wearing a hat and i think that really works yeah. yeah i think it really worked and i think it was a nice um there's a lot of things in this movie that are very convenient but i i did appreciate that element and i think that it it worked for me um yep. and then the other moment that i really um that i liked a lot and i don't know if this is a favorite scene but it's certainly like in my top moments from this movie um is when uh, the tsunami is coming through and, uh, you know, everybody's going to die and that's it. And we're all going down and uh, the old couple see it coming and they like turn to each other and hug. And it's like yeah. super cheesy. Um, but it also was like, well, what would you do if that's... you saw this giant wall of water coming towards you that's and your it. loved one? And You're done. you know, you can't get away. There yep. is no exit. There is no escape. Um, you know, do you do you go? How do you go down? You know, and I thought that that was a great um just sort of little beat that they didn't have to include. Like that could have been one of those on the cutting room floor editing choices. Yep. And I felt like, you know, yeah, it's meant to kind of tug at your heartstrings, but it worked for me. Um, mm -hmm. It didn't have unneeded dialogue or any sort of like, you know, throwaway sentence or whatever. It was just, they just hug and that's it. And you know that they're dead. And, and right. I, I like that. I thought that was nice. Yeah, I think that's probably a moment that doesn't work if we know those characters and we have yes. like dialogue leading up to it. But the fact that it's just this like, it it reminds us that like this isn't just about this beautiful family. This is yeah. like all these people are dying. Innocent people are dying everywhere. Like so even if there is a happy ending to this story, there's a lot of sad endings too. And I like that reminder in this movie. I think I think that works. Um, so for me, uh, my favorite scenes, it's interesting. Like the first thing that, as I was watching the movie, I love the Hoover Dam sequence. I think it really works. My only problem is the first thing I think of is Superman. When I think of the Hoover Dam kind of bursting apart. So you get those, yeah. that kind of reminiscing moment that takes you out of it a little bit. But I love that, uh, in a weird way, we give Paul Giamatti a chance to be a little bit of an action hero in this sequence we get to you know he gets to run around he gets this you know you know play a part in saving this young girl's life so i'm glad he wasn't just relegated to hiding under a table for the entire movie so i like that sequence but i yeah. and, and i think all the action there's not a single action sequence here that doesn't work like and yeah. i think that's a danger in a movie like this where you have this build as things get worse and worse it's easy for it to be like well uh too bad the bridge sequence didn't work because that was supposed to be the big moment but that works um the scene with uh, uh with uh with uh emma on top of the building works uh the tsunami works but i think actually my favorite action sequence and it got i think it was even in the trailer so you knew they were trying to pump this up 
And it's after a moment I really don't like because you you have him in the helicopter and the Hollywood sign is turned over and I'm like kind of rolling my eyes like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I get it. It's really bad. Look, even the Hollywood sign is knocked over. But then we have the rolling earthquake scene, which I just adore yeah. from a technical perspective. Like it's not – it would be very easy to overdo that and they, they just – they hit just the right note with it. And that was actually another thing I looked up, which apparently is really unlikely to ever happen, but – it, but it works in this movie. It doesn't feel excessive. Whereas the thing about, you know, feeling that New York does feel excessive. But I just love, like, yeah. not only is it a cool effect, but it also shows how far this is going. Like, this is not something that is containable. This is something yeah. that, okay, all you can do right now is save your family because you're not going to save everybody. It's not that kind of movie. And I think that is yeah. the first moment where you realize, like, oh, this is not this is not your standard movie where everyone is going to come out safe. Like, there is some real risk here. Yeah. So I love that moment. Yeah, I agree. And because, um, because this isn't a contained uh, disaster movie, because it's a disaster movie where it's not just the one family who's at risk, but it's, mm -hmm. you know, entire cities and possibly half the country um, who's at least going to feel some sort of damage here. Right. Uh, I, I definitely appreciated that they gave us, you know, sort of plot justification for that. Mm -hmm. Oh, and I, I forgot to mention, I also love uh, Carla Gugino's moment where she leaves a message for Daniel threatening his life. Hi, you've reached Daniel. Please leave me a message and I'll get back to you. You left my daughter? If you're not already dead, I'm going to fucking kill you. Like, I don't, I, I oh, love, wow. I love that she got that, that moment, that kind of mama bear yeah. moment, like, cause it would yeah. be, you know, she doesn't really get to spend a lot of time with her daughter in this movie or spend a lot of time with Daniel. And I think she gets all that vitriol and that pain across just in like 10 seconds on a voicemail message, which is pretty, it's a pretty impressive vocal performance. So I like that moment too. I didn't want this episode to go by without mentioning that. So I can throw that okay, sound clip in there. <laughs> I think that's so good. Um it's such a good moment from that character. And it's, it's a good moment from a character that, like you said, um, doesn't get to express a lot of her frustration, even though she has it clearly. Right. Uh, and I think that that, uh, that was just, it's a, it's a great line. And it's one of those, it's again, like, you know, none of this dialogue is going to win awards, but um, <laughs> it just, I think it worked. Um, yeah. I think she sold it. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. All right. Uh, so let's move on to the theme. Uh, we've had a lot of fun with this episode, but now it's time to kind of bring it back down to earth. Uh, talk about the death of a child. <laughs> so, um, you know, I kind of gave you a couple options on the theme because I wasn't sure I wanted to do this theme because it's so fucking dark. Uh, but you yeah. brought up a good point that, like, I think in some ways that's kind of the reason, like, the reason behind the show is I feel like even the kind of trashiest, most simplistic, you know, action-based disaster movies, there are moments in it that deal with uh, with the psychological side of things. Um, so yeah. it's interesting to take a look at something this, this dark and this deep in a movie that is – not dark and not deep. So it's interesting that that's the plot line they chose. So how did you see kind of the death of the child kind of affecting the characters just within the movie? You know, I mean, you kind of see it throughout. Uh, you know, I think I think you actually see it. It's interesting because I don't think it comes up. Like, I don't think we actually find out that it happened until um, like later in the movie. It's like, like an it's hour like into the movie, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a midpoint kind of like reveal. Um, but I think... Uh, I think what's interesting about it is that we do um, we see its impact on the characters in retrospect once mm -hmm. we know that right. um, very early on because 
you do see that, you know, The Rock and uh, Carla Gugino are essentially breaking up and she's about to move in with her sleazy new boyfriend or whatever. Um, and that's clearly, you know, divorce papers, all this stuff, like all of that exposition stuff is clearly a result of this death. So mm-hmm. um, you see its impact early on, even though you don't know that that's what you're seeing. Right. So, uh, you know, I think that it sort of extends throughout. And then, uh, you know, obviously it comes up a lot more in dialogue kind of later on. And they do, um, you know, they do mostly relegate this to dialogue. Like it does end up being mostly, you know, The Rock kind of fighting with his ex over this thing that happened in the past and how neither of them have fully come to terms with it or dealt with it or addressed it in a big way. Right. Um, she apparently has done a little bit more of the work than he has, but, uh, both of them still kind of need to. Uh, and so, you know, I think, um, the big thing with it is that it sort of ends up being that impetus for the final rescue where, right. uh, he has to save his other daughter from potentially drowning. And that's another one of those sort of convenient things about this movie where, she could have been falling through a crack in the earth, but instead they find a way to make it that she's almost drowning too. Um, But it's sort of his redemption arc. um, And that's Mm -hmm. really what the movie is about thematically uh, beyond the loss of a child is sort of, how do you redeem yourself from that? How do you come to terms with it? How do you, you know, find a way back to, you know, feeling better about life? at all if you can um mm-hmm. which you know i can't imagine it, it just must be one of those things that kind of you stays with you for the rest of your life and i don't know if you ever really get over something like that um but essentially he hasn't done any of the emotional work to even try to get past it so um it's basically this earthquake and this tsunami um gives him the opportunity to do that so right that's sort of what I see, um, like how I see it impacting the plot and how I see it affecting like sort of scene by scene is that it ends up being uh, creating an opportunity or an emotional opportunity for this character to move past something that has sort of been this emotional disaster for his family. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. And I think you hit a lot of things uh, on the head as far as as far as how it affects the movie. I mean, even even the opening of this film is, you know, half of that necklace floating in the water. Um, So we have, you know, who knows if they're trying to reference the child who died or the child who didn't because you have both of them, you know, floating at water at some point in this movie. Um, I just feel like, you know, from a plot perspective, it's something I was going to bring up in the script, but wanted to wait since we were going to talk about here. I'm not sure it ever really works. Um, I think, you know, one, it's really stereotypical that like, of course, the guy is the one who shuts down and and doesn't. Right. And it would be, it would be so easy to kind of switch this and like, and make this work. And you even mentioned you could flip the casting completely and have, you know, the, the female character be the, uh, be the rescue pilot. And this movie could still work. And I thought that would have been a more interesting way to deal with it. But we talked about how lighthearted the rock is and i think that's to this subplot's detriment is that in every sequence in the movie he's amiable he's you know he's laughing he's enjoying even the camaraderie between him and his team 
Like that yeah. stuff all works. Everyone he talks to loves him. So you never really see that darkness. They only try and get it across in the discussion in the helicopter when it comes up and in the moment where he like drives off in his truck because he's angry about the divorce papers. And of course, the next time yes. they speak, he's already apologizing and he's already forgiven. So like that stuff, I, I feel like it, it felt like it was shoehorned in because we needed something. Um, yeah. But I, I don't think this movie necessarily is like the greatest representation of I think probably the movies you you mentioned, you know, as far as like recommendations are probably a much better representation of what this actually does to a family because yeah. it seems like everyone is just I mean, this sounds bad, but like everyone is too forgiving. Like he yeah. talks about it once and like now the marriage is back together. You know, there's never a moment where his daughter his daughter Blake is upset with him in this entire movie yeah. or even loses faith that he will rescue her. There's not a single yeah. moment where like there's any kind of conflict there. And I think if if a family had gone through this, I mean, one, they probably wouldn't have a pool. I mean, let's like yeah. that's it's not something that would be happening. But two, like there would be some real conflict there. And I think it's just not yeah. that type of movie. So it feels a bit like wasted energy. In a movie yeah. that is so energetic that it doesn't really need it. It does. Um, it is wasted energy. And it's also, you know, uh, you know, kind of another thing along those lines. Like you mentioned, you know, they probably wouldn't have a pool. But it, it brings up a good point that, like, this is a family that is very well off. Mm. And I'm very confused as to why that's the case. Like, right? I, you know, we don't really ever know what she does. Um, but it seems like they both have really big, nice houses in a really big, nice area. Right. Um, that seems like it's a very high rent area. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, so, I mean, as somebody who is always struggling to pay their rent, <laughs> um, you know, I just, uh, I mean, movie houses are always fake, but like this one to, to a big extent, especially right. because I agree, like, I think after the loss of a child, like, do you do like maybe some people do like maybe it like it's possible that one of these two people might then go get a very nice house and you know settle down and you know try and kind of move on from it and whatever right. um, and maybe she's in Daniel's house I, I don't know um, but it seemed like not it seemed like she was in her own house because Blake was obviously there and whatever um, but it just it struck me as very strange that they would both have these like really gorgeous like palatial mm -hmm. kind of houses right um you know and be kind of seeming like their lives are really together and everything's really clean and neat and whatever and it just um maybe that goes back to production design or whatever but right. um it's definitely I don't think that my world would look like that uh after the loss of somebody right. that I loved so much um especially yeah somebody that close to me and somebody who was a child or, you know, a, a, a spouse or whatever. Um, I'm not so sure that everything would still be clean in my house. Yeah. Um, even that many years later, I think I still would, yeah. would probably, there would be signs of things crumbling. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, the biggest sign that we have of any sort of nostalgia or whatever is, uh, that memory box that he, he right. looks through that's, you know, Blake's memory box or whatever. Um, but that's such a, I don't know. It's, it just, it's, there's, there's some issues. Like you say, um, this is just a subplot that doesn't ever fully work. And I think, uh, I think it's to the story's detriment because I think ultimately what it is, is that, you know, when you're writing this classic hero's journey, which this is, um, you know, you have to give the hero some sort of a flaw, some kind of a pain or right. a, uh, some sort of loss or something in their backstory. That's, uh, a 
a problem that they have to overcome emotionally in order mm-hmm. to save the day. Yeah. Um, and they chose this thing that they didn't have to choose. They could have chosen anything. Um, right. You know, it could have been that he never, it could have been that he didn't save somebody in Afghanistan and now he is regretting that. And this is how he's coping with it. It could have right. been that he, um, you know, had a really bad relationship with his dad who said he never measured up. And now this is how he's proving that he does, you know, there right. could have been any sort of thing. They could have literally picked anything. Right. Um, and they chose this, this dead child thing that I don't think ever fully works. And I think, you know, like you said earlier, part of why they did that was so that you could understand why the marriage had broken up. Right. Um, and I do think that it works for that reason, but I'm not sure that it works for any of the other reasons. All right. Uh, so I think that covers the theme and the movie. I think, I mean, obviously you both enjoy this movie a lot. Uh, it's not a movie that's going to change the world, but it is a really fun bit of two hours of escape. Uh, and I think even if you listen to this whole episode with all these spoilers, uh, I don't think it ruins it. I think it's it's such a visual film that I think it's still yeah. a good time. So if you haven't seen it, Rent it. Go watch it. It's it's a really good yeah. time. Watch it on the biggest screen you can, given that you're at yes. home, uh, because it is a special effects driven film. Uh, but it's it's really worth it. I would I would definitely check it out. Yeah. All Agreed. right. So um, the last thing we have to cover is how excited or not uh, we are for the uh, the movie we're pairing this with, which is uh, Dwayne Johnson's newest film, uh, Baywatch, also starring, I think, Alexandra Daddario again uh, and Zac yeah. Efron. Uh, so uh, what are your your thoughts on this on this release coming up? Oh, man. Um, you know, I mean, we're in like reboot, remake, rehash, re whatever mm. uh, world right now. I mean, yes. we just kind of have to accept the fact that that's where we are. Um, and there's no fighting it at this point. Like, it's just where we it's, are. It's here. Um, yep. It's here. It's here to stay. Uh, you know, to an extent, I actually think that there is something to be said for rebooting um some of the cheesier things that have come out of television and movies, uh, just, you know, um, we, we've seen it work and we've seen it not work. Uh, you know, I, I feel like there was like a, a Starsky and Hutch reboot that maybe collapsed. Yeah. all that well. Ben Stiller Um, and Owen Wilson. Not a, not good. Yeah. So, (laughs) you know, there's, there's, there's things that can go very wrong, uh, when you do these reboots and then there's things Mm -hmm. that can go very right. Um, I actually feel as though, Television has demonstrated um, reboots in a better way. Yeah. Obviously, I think we're about to see that with Twin Peaks and certain other things that are coming down the line with TV. Um, Will and Grace is coming back. Uh, but, you know, um, I, I'm i not so sure that this is going to be one of those good choices. <laughs> um, nonetheless, like you said, uh, you know, the cast is what the cast is. I mean, mm-hmm. they're a very attractive cast. They're a very... Yep. Um, you know, they sell well overseas kind of cast, uh, you know, so I do think that this is a movie that's going to do well. Um, do I think this is a movie that I will want to go out and watch? Probably not. Uh, (laughs) I was not a huge fan of the original show, so I don't think that this is really up my alley. Um, but I completely understand why it's going to be made or going to be released. It's already been made, I guess. Um, I totally get why it's going to be released and I completely understand also, um, why it feels like a summer movie because it has yeah. all those summer movie elements. You know, it's got mm-hmm. the cheese ball humor and it's got 
people running around in bathing suits and falling over and it's got people, you know, rescuing other people from potential near death and all of that sort of fun stuff. So, you know, I think it's got a, it's got summer movie written all over it. So hopefully it does well. Um, it's got a lot of people I like in it and it's the kind of thing that I could see myself, you know, renting on a rainy afternoon while I wash the dishes or something, but uh, (laughs) I don't see myself running out to the theater for it. Right. All right. So uh, from my perspective, uh, at first glance, this is a movie that doesn't look good. Uh, But here is my defense of why I would want to see it. So if you had told me, one, that 21 Jump Street would be an amazing reboot and really funny, I wouldn't have believed you. But it was and it did really well. Um, and, yeah. it, and it had kind of a meta aspect to it, which this trailer yeah. also seems to have. Like they make a joke about the running in slow motion and all that. Like it, they're really they're really self-aware and self-referential. Um, so that yeah. could work. The other thing is if you had told me 10 years ago that that kid from High School Musical is going to be one of the better comedic actors, I would not yeah. have believed you. But Dak Efron is a really talented comedian. And who would have yeah. ever thought? I mean, granted, he made one of one of the most offensive and worst movies I've seen in a long time in Dirty Grandpa. Uh, but if you look yeah. at the Neighbors franchise, he's really funny there. He's really gifted comedically. Yes. And then you you throw The Rock in there, who's always charming yeah. and always funny. So yeah. this this is one of those like 50-50 movies. Like this is either going to be laugh out loud, riotously funny or god awful. Yeah. And I don't see a lot yeah. of room in the middle. So, no. so I'm interested in seeing it because it's either going to be really good and funny or it's going to be like a beautiful disaster. Uh, and I kind of want to, I want to be there for that. But so yeah. it, it'll be interesting to see which way this goes because it really could go either way. Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. This could be a disaster. It could be amazing. Um, and I think really we're going to know the most on opening weekend because yep. that's when, uh, you know, once the reviews come in and once people start seeing it, uh, you know, it's going to be either one of those you have to go see this with your friends in the theater because it's the laugh out loud hit of whatever or it's going to be one of those you know they really missed the mark on this one so you know it could go either way it could really go either way absolutely nice uh so before you go uh one more time tell people how to reach you online if you want them to um yeah i mean never stalk me online but if you're going to um (laughs) no you can uh you can find me on twitter um at miranda sajak is really the best way to to find me um i'm pretty active on there i tweet a lot about politics and movies and everything else that's wrong with the world so um yeah definitely (laughs) follow me there Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. So if you want to connect with the show, lots of ways you can do that. One, keep listening, tell your friends so we can grow our audience. Or you can go to followingfilms.com and check out other great movie podcasts like The Best and Worst of the Best and the True Bromance Film Podcast. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at PC Case Study. But if you'd like to put your money where your mouth is, you can go to patreon.com slash popculturecasestudy, and there you can donate on a per-episode basis and get some cool rewards while supporting an independent podcast. Now, the next time you hear me, we will be doing our new release review on Baywatch, and for that, I will have Jameson Rabbit of the Real Films podcast to join me for that one. And if all goes well, Britt will be here for Fangirl Fixation, and we will take a look at an older disaster movie, The Towering Inferno. 
So until then, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. might have to let my cats in otherwise they're gonna meow that's no problem um we're just gonna hear my cats like meowing at the door which is unnecessary i'd rather hear them meowing in my face um okay so they're they're not super loud don't worry it's okay um you just meow when i don't let them in (laughs) they usually go an hour and yeah it's like an hour and a half who would have thought that san andreas would say about san andreas there is who knew yeah (laughs) 